We're supposed to wear masks everywhere. So, you know, this has become a very common sight. Maybe not this particular mask. This has become a very common sight. Most all of you came into church today wearing your mask faithfully. And, uh, well, I mean, among the people that I talk to more frequently, I would say that the majority of them hate the masks. I didn't say that for applause, but there you go. It's polarizing. Some people really, some people really like them. Okay, so I'm going to take this off. And uh, yay. So the idea is, okay, take the mask off. Okay, so if, if the mask issue has been on your radar, and I don't know how it couldn't be, um, can I just say to you, you have come to the right place today because we're actually going to talk about it. And we're going to talk a little bit about what I think is the Bible version of a mask. It would be called a veil. And that's what we're going to see today. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You can take your Bibles and prepare there. We're at the end of chapter number 3, walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. A veil in the Bible is a covering. It's like a mask. And, well, it's typically applied, right, in order to hide or distort the full and clear appearance of something. That's what it's for. In fact, I put this in your notes, is that a veil communicates a, a mystery. It communicates a mystery. Whatever's behind the veil, you can't see that clearly, and it's, it's kind of a mystery, right? You're not supposed to know what's behind the veil. So in a typical traditional wedding, the bride will be veiled as she comes down the aisle and the bridegroom waits for her and typically they'll go through all the vows and the ceremony until they are pronounced husband and wife where the groom gets to remove the veil and then kiss his bride. Uh, all of you, I assume, have curtains in your home and you have them for a reason because you don't really want the rest of us looking inside. That's why we have them, anyway. And in the Bible, God put a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. But we know that when Jesus died, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. It was rent in two, right? And so the mystery of what was behind the veil was now removed, and we can all go directly into the very presence of God, which is represented by the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, because of what Jesus did for us. But sadly, people today are still yet confused about who God really is and what he offers them. Sadly, too often I'd say that's because God's ministers continue to operate from behind a veil. And Christians sometimes do carry out the ministry through a veil. 
They, they make the truth of God's word and the understanding of who he is and what's available to them, they sometimes make it a bit mysterious. Sometimes people are still yet uncertain about what this is all really all about. So today, we want to unveil the mystery of ministry. That's the title I've given the message, Unveiling the Mystery of Ministry. And let me just ask you a question for you to reflect on, and I want you to be thinking about throughout the time that we study these last six or seven verses in 2 Corinthians 3, and that's this. And just think about it. Don't look around. Don't poke anybody. What level of hypocrisy would it show if you were the kind of person who would fight and argue all day long about not wanting to wear a mask, and yet you come into the house of God and you wear a mask before him every single day? What, what, what would you think that God would think of such a person that may not have the cloth on their face, but yet before the Lord, they still hide behind masks of pretense? That's what I want us to think about today as we look into this passage. So follow along with me. We're going to jump in in verse number 12. We're going to go to the end of the chapter, 2 Corinthians 3. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's pray together. So, Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as we come before your word, Lord, my singular prayer is that we would be unveiled, that we would be open and honest and just leave it as it is in front of you. Whoever we are, however we are, however we've come, whatever baggage we've brought, whatever things we've been through, whatever things have been troubling us, that we would be willing to just enter into your presence today and let you see us and let you show us and most importantly, let you change us from whatever glory we thought we had to the glory that you have for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, two main points. We're really going to camp for a good long while on the first point, and then we'll get, obviously, to the second one. But there's a couple of different ways that we're going to see how we as the church of Jesus Christ, it talks about, a lot about Israel, but about how we as the church of Jesus Christ are to unveil this mystery. And, and the theme of 2 Corinthians is ministry, and, and it's certainly in that context that I want us, point number one, to unveil your communication. Paul wants us to understand that we need to have the manner of speech that we carry not be veiled, okay? Verse number 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. 
plainness is also translated in other places in your Bible as openly or openness, boldly or boldness, okay? So this is the idea of being plain, open, in full sight, bold, not veiled. Make sure your communication, that your speech is not hidden behind some kind of a veil in some kind of a way. It is sad to say that too often people do speak in ways that normal people just can't understand. Sometimes they use foreign languages. For a thousand years through the Dark Ages, well, they call it the Middle Ages now, the Roman Catholic Church and all of Europe, well, they had their mass in Latin. The common people had no idea what they were saying. In fact, when they finally switched over to the languages of the people, there was a lot of faithful Catholic people that were like, that, that's what they're saying? <laughs> it seemed cooler when it was in Latin. I don't know. Uh, today, what we see are what we would call Nicolaitan theologians. And what they do is they'll be constantly referencing Greek and Hebrew. And you might sit in a church and hear that and think, I, I don't know that I even know what he's talking about. Sometimes people just use technical terminology. You know, the, the, the tradesman lingo that's known only to them. So somebody could get up and sound all important by saying something like, the pastor's homiletic shows an improper exegesis of the text revealing also a weak hermeneutic soteriologically with eschatological implications. I mean, who talks like that? You know, you could communicate that same sentence a little more simply, couldn't you? You could say the pastor's sermon showed he didn't study properly. Messed up on the message concerning salvation, which has implications for the end times. You understand that? <laughs> Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Plain speech is a characteristic of a true minister of Jesus Christ. And we see that Paul emphasized that, in fact, uh, Paul spoke so plainly that some people thought he was rude. In chapter 11 and verse number 6, he refers to it. He says, I know that some of you think I'm rude when I talk. Uh, some people, they noticed that, well, he, he sometimes had to use sharpness when he talked. That's in chapter 13. He spoke so plainly, so boldly, so openly. They said, well, that's, that's kind of hard. And, and they even accused him of being contemptible in chapter 10. That's how important plainness of speech was to Paul. And there's a reason. Because Paul's ministry, well, it's all about the results. Paul was interested in people's lives truly being changed. So he just made a decision. He made a decision that in his ministry he would use great plainness of speech and that he would say what he meant and that he would mean what he said. It's just that simple. And as a result, he just didn't waste a lot of time worrying about whether or not the people liked it. He just didn't worry about it. You see, you need to understand that the truth is the truth, and people need the truth. The truth is the truth. It is what it is. Facts are stubborn things. They just kind of stand there. 
You can like it, not like it, disagree, argue, say whatever you want, but a fact, it just kind of stands there. I'm a fact. What are you going to do with it? And you know what? People need to hear the truth. People deserve to hear the truth. They can handle it. And even if they can't handle it, isn't that up to them? I mean, truly, who are we to make the executive decision beforehand that I'm not going to tell you the truth because I'm not sure you'll be able to handle it? I think that it's up to them to handle it. I'll tell you what we can't do. We can't put a veil on God's word. That's what we can't do. We can't put a veil on God's word simply because we're too worried that maybe they'll get offended. Nobody wants to offend anybody. Nobody sets out to do that. But if the truth in of itself can be offensive, aren't we still commanded to communicate the truth? We certainly are. Listen, I consider, and I think you might agree, a good teacher, anybody who's a good teacher of any subject, is a good teacher when they can take complex material and present it in such a way that everybody can understand it. I mean, if you really know your stuff, you can take something that's very technical, that's very complex, and you can take a lay person who's just interested and you can explain it to them in a way that they can get it. I mean, I appreciate doctors. They have done all the work and the study and they, okay, but, but I appreciate it when they speak my language. I say, you know, it hurts when I do this. And, they, you know, they could give me the Latin descriptions of stuff, but that doesn't help me. I need to know that, you know, this connection didn't work and the nerve isn't firing and my muscle's weak. or what, Just tell me what it is. I can handle it. Uh, auto mechanics, engineers, people, people understand great technical detail and just explain it to you in a way that's like, well, this is broken. This is why it's got to go that way because if you don't do this, that won't happen and that's what we got to do. And you can get that, Right? So that's just the way Paul decided he was going to form his ministry. Jesus also understood this principle. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but you need to understand that Jesus did the same thing. Remember the story in John chapter 11 where Jesus is with the disciples and they're in Bethany and they get word that Lazarus is sick and they get word that Lazarus is sick and they go and they, they decide, you know, okay, we're going to go see him, but they wait two days still and and, and Jesus realizes he's waiting two days and Lazarus is going to die. He's going to raise him from the dead eventually. Jesus knew this ahead of time. And so he tells the disciples, we got to go, you know, wake Lazarus up because he's sleeping. And the disciples just didn't get it. They're like, well, if he's sleeping, I mean, leave him alone. Let him rest a little bit, poor guy. You know, that kind of thing. And so then we have in John eleven fourteen. 14, um, I messed up the reference, by the way. It should be eleven fourteen. So forget that. Write it down the other way. And where Jesus says to his disciples, he said plainly, Lazarus is dead. Because he was talking about this sleep and all that. They thought he was just sleeping, but he wasn't sleeping. That's a reference to death, physical death. He's like, Lazarus is sleeping. We've got to wake him up out of sleep. What he's saying is, Lazarus is dead. I'm going to raise him from the dead. But they didn't get it. So what did Jesus do? Oh, 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 you didn't get it. Well, let me say it to you plainly. Lazarus is dead. Well, that's the way we need to be able to communicate. Listen, don't hide the truth. Oh, by the way, people only hide the truth when it's bad news, right? I mean, nobody hides good news. We can't wait to tell the good news, people, right? People hide the bad news, right? And, uh, man, 
but especially when it's bad news, I think we need to give it to them plain. We give it, need to give it to people in a clear way so that they can understand it. And a good minister of the gospel must communicate the bad news. Because gospel means good news, but it starts with bad news. And you know that, that, well, God is holy. And because God is holy, it reveals the fact that man is sinful. Man's sinful, that's, that's not good news. Go talk to somebody you just met and tell them they're a sinner. I mean, that's not, that's not the most friendly conversation to start with. But it's true. And as a result of the fact that God's holy and man's sinful, there's of necessity a separation between the two. Another characteristic of God is that he's just. And since he is just, he must punish sin. That's not good news. But people need to understand that they are sinful, that they are separated from God, that God is just and their sin must be punished. They must understand that the wages or the payment or the punishment for their sin is death, and it actually includes hell, the second death. They need to understand that. And can I tell you that anybody who's unwilling to tell other people about sin and punishment and hell, well, they're just not telling you the truth. They're veiling the truth. And that's just not what a good minister does. Because all of that is true. And people need the truth. You need to know it. Listen, there's no help in deceiving people into thinking they're okay when they're not. Doesn't help anybody, right? I mean, let's go back to the medical thing. If you have problems, if you have a medical issue, if you have cancer, if you have something going on in your body, you don't want the doctor to be like, eh, it's okay. And you just keep getting worse, right? You'd ra- you don't like hearing the word, but you, you'd rather hear what's really going on so that you can begin to take measures, hopefully, to get it fixed, Right? And so it is in Christian ministry. We, we have to be willing to let people know the bad news so that they can get the treatment because the bad can, and certainly in the gospel does, prepare you to receive the good news. And that's that God is love. In fact, he loved you so much he sent Jesus to die in your place. He sacrificed and took your sin upon him. He died the death of a sinner. He died your death in your place so you don't have to. And that salvation in Jesus Christ is available to you today. It's available to each and every one of you, and that's the greatest news ever. But if you don't understand the bad news first, you never even get to that. So we have to have great plainness of speech. And according to verse 12, great plainness of speech comes from having a great hope. Now, this ties into last week's message, and I'm not going to repeat it. You can go back and listen to it if you weren't here. But the great hope comes from the fact that our life in Christ is called a ministration of the Spirit, small s, Spirit. It's Christ's life lived in and through us such that we are, like at the beginning of this chapter, living epistles of the truth of God. That's a great hope. Our life is also called a ministration of righteousness. As we can display a righteous life in the power of God's Spirit, it, our part of our hope is tied into the fact that we have eternal security because it endures forever. It's not something that's going to fade away or be abolished. 
These are the things that give us our great hope. We are the living representation of God's glory on this earth. That's who he made us to be. And because we have this great hope, we can have great plainness when we talk. Doesn't matter how bad your life may look for you, and for a lot of people, 2020 has looked pretty bad. Your great hope can yield great boldness. And boldness is plainness. You remember the story, we're not going to go there and look at it together, but in Acts chapter 4, we have shortly after Pentecost where Peter and John are in Jerusalem and they're preaching and they've got great boldness and they're preaching everywhere. And the Sadducees and the leaders of the Jews, they don't like the fact that they're preaching Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And so they're out there and the leaders come to Peter and John and they begin to threaten them in verses 17 and 18. And they, and they tell them, look, don't talk about this anymore. In fact, it says they commanded them, these government leaders commanded them not to teach in Jesus' name anymore. Well, the next couple of verses, 19 and 20, Peter and John, full of the Holy Spirit, right? They just said, look, you decide whether we should obey God or whether we should obey man. And then he said this, he said, we cannot but speak these things. We have no choice. And so then they go down a little further into the chapter. In verse 29, they, they begin to pray for more boldness. And then in verse 31, we see this amazing truth that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness, plainness. Which means that any minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ who's full of the Spirit of God, will speak the Word of God boldly and plainly so everybody can get it. This is all fairly obvious, but I feel like I need to go through it. Listen, I haven't even started to explain to you yet the reasons why veiled communication is dangerous. But actually, that's the pur purpose of verses 13 to 17. And we're going to spend some time talking about the story of Moses. When he comes down off the mountain, he's talking to the children of Israel with a veil on his face in order to hide God's glory. And so letter C is Israel, and this is the illustration to describe what Paul is teaching us in the church in verse number 12. So in verse 13, he says, Not as Moses, who put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, now, once again, if you were with us last week, we spent some time in Exodus 34 and reading that story where Moses receives the Ten Commandments for the second time and comes down off the mountain and he sees the children of Israel and the glory on his face and they all ran for fear and he calls them to come to him and Aaron and the elders of Israel come to him first and then eventually all the people come to him and when he spoke with the people, he had to have the veil because they couldn't hack standing in God's glory shining off Moses' face. But when he went up and talked with the Lord, he took the veil off because he was just open-faced before the Lord. And so we looked at all of that last week. And so what we need to understand is, is that for us now, Paul uses that story to teach us something, that we don't communicate with our words the same way Moses did with the veil over his face. 
because the result was directly in this verse that the children of Israel were not able to get all of the truth. They weren't able to get all of the deal. They weren't able to understand that, well, actually, the law was only temporary. The end of the law was is that it would be abolished. So what you need to do is, practically speaking, you need to watch out for anybody who does that kind of stuff. You need to watch out for anybody who speaks in such a way that it's veiled and you can't really get all the truth. In fact, Paul warns us about people like that in Romans 16, 17 and 18, where he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they are that are that, for they that are such, excuse me, serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Listen, there's a lot of smooth talkers out there that are telling you lies. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying every smooth talker always tells you lies, and I'm not saying every rough talker always tells you the truth. The truth is the truth, regardless of how it's presented. But there's a lot of people who happen to be quite gifted orators, just don't happen to be telling you the truth. And Paul says you got to watch out for those people. It puts a veil on God's glory because God is glorified in his word, right? And simple people, that's not a derogatory statement. That means normal people. Simple people need simple, plain speech. That's what they need. So they can get it. So you can have results like Paul is interested in. Moses wore the veil because the people couldn't handle the reflection of God's glory off of his face. And the word of God reflects God's glory. And we should never put a veil on that. Never. It goes on in verse 14 of our text and it says, But their minds were blinded. Their, meaning Israel's, minds were blinded. So regardless of the common proverb that we may use today, the truth of the matter is seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. That's biblical. Hebrews 11, verse number 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith brings evidence, but it brings evidence of things that you can't see physically. Because truly believing is seeing spiritually. That's really what it is. And that's only when it comes from the light of God's word. So in Psalm 119, 130, the entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding, oh yeah, unto the simple. Because it is simple. And go back to Hebrews 11 and the story of Moses described in Hebrews 11 in verse 27 where it says, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, notice, as seeing him, Who is invisible as seeing the Lord? How did he do that? He did that by faith. See? It says, but their minds were blinded. So spiritual blindness comes from a lack of faith. That's where it comes from. So by the time Jesus Christ shows up, Israel had this lack of faith. And their lack of faith resulted in this little discourse I have for you in Matthew 13 where Jesus presents the reason why he taught them in parables. 
Matthew 13, 13, therefore speak I to them in parables. Why? Because they seeing, see not. Well, it sounds like a contradiction. Well, he's just trying to make an illustration. Seeing, yeah, they can see physically, but spiritually they see not. And he's contrasting physical and spiritual. Because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes notice they have closed. God didn't sovereignly declare, decree to close their eyes from before the foundation of the world. That's not what happened. They, they did it. They closed their eyes. By their unbelief, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. So their unbelief that caused their blindness, well, unbelief means that you're unsaved, right? We'll see in a few weeks, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, but if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, small g, that's the devil, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So let's go back to our text in verse 14 where we left off. Their minds were blinded. For until this day, the days of the New Testament era, after Jesus Christ, remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. So this veil, right, is going to represent a mystery. And this is one of the New Testament mysteries. There's actually seven mysteries in the New Testament. We're going to look at three of them today. But one of them is here in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. It's the mystery of the regathering and the return of the nation of Israel, not just as a physical political entity, but as the children of God. And so we read in Romans 11:25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. How do you know they're mysteries? Well, it says it's a mystery. It's not hard. It's not mysterious. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits, here it is. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. You say, what's that? Well, let me just tell you, it's really soon. It's really soon. Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So in other words, now during the church age, the time in which Paul is writing to the Romans, right? The Jews as a whole are blind to the truth of the Old Testament. So, in your notes, I put it this way. Israel can't see the prophetic pictures of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Romans 3, or 2 Corinthians 3.14 in our text. For unto this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, there's prophetic pictures and types of Jesus Christ. Some are direct prophecies, some are in typology, but they're throughout the Old Testament, and the typical Jude in the time in which we live now can't see it because blindness in part has happened to them because of their unbelief. 
the most obvious of which everybody should immediately go to is Isaiah 53. And literally, you could read the entire chapter. I've just grabbed a few verses from the middle, but this is one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus Christ. But they don't get it. So, for example, we'll pick up Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I mean, you'll just see Jesus all through this. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And the Jews of today, if you were to sit down with one of them, and if you were to have a conversation about Isaiah 53, would explain to you, silly foolish Gentile, that this is not talking about Jesus Christ. This is talking about the nation of Israel referred to as God's son in Exodus chapter 4. That's what they think. And just for fun, if you want to, just on your own, go to the rest of Isaiah 53. Just keep reading, and I dare you to try and force fit the nation of Israel into the rest of that text. You just can't do it. But there's plenty more. What about Psalm 22, one of the greatest prophecies of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember when Jesus said that on the cross? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? We'll go down to verses 6 through 8, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And the Jews today say, that's just talking about David. Because all they can see is a historical application. They can't see a doctrinal prophetic application because their minds are blinded because of their unbelief. And all the other prophetic types and pictures that go throughout the Old Testament, in fact, there's 21, go figure, 7 and 7 and 7 makes 21, pictures and types of Jesus Christ all through the Old Testament. So you can look at Adam, who was the son of God. And all through the Old Testament, there are no other human beings ever called a son of God until Jesus Christ shows up, who, oh, by the way, is also called the second Adam. But they can't see that. What about Abel, the first shepherd in the Bible who's killed by his brother? They can't see that picture. What about Noah that survived global judgment to start over fresh on planet Earth? They can't see that. What about Melchizedek, that obscure person who's a high priest that it says he's without origin? What's that all about? Well, he's a picture and a type of Jesus Christ. What about that great picture of Isaac when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22 and Man, what a wonderful picture that is where Abraham pictures God the Father sacrificing his very son. And oh, by the way, Mount Moriah is the exact location of Calvary. 
What about Joseph, arguably the greatest type of Jesus Christ that ever existed in the Old Testament? Betrayed of his brothers, sent to Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh, and the savior of the world during a famine. What about King David, the great king with God's heart, victorious in battle? What about Solomon, his son, the king with the highest amount of wisdom that reigned over the kingdoms of the earth when there was nothing but peace? And all these pictures and all these types that point to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they can't get it. They can't see it because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They're blinded. So it goes on back to our text in verse 16, and it says, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, now for the record, it is a reference to the nation of Israel, when it, Israel, shall turn to the Lord. Well, there's going to be a time when Israel is going to come around. It's actually going to be in the tribulation. And they're going to come around and they're going to believe. They're going to recognize who Jesus really is. And when that happens, now we go back to Romans 11. We saw the mystery in verse 25. We pick it up in verse 26 where it says, And so all Israel at that time shall be saved. And you know that that's yet future because it says, And as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. When exactly is it that the Lord's going to take away the sins of the nation of Israel? Well, Peter preached it in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where he, I mean, 19 and, yeah, 19 and 20, where it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come, notice, from the presence of the Lord. When exactly is that? Well, and he shall send Jesus Christ. This is post-resurrection and ascension. He's talking about it as second coming which before was preached unto you. So the national salvation of Israel to become the people of God again will happen. God will return them. That was a mystery, right? But we don't, we don't have to be mis mysterious about it because he's revealed it to us in his word. But that's going to be taken away and they are going to be the people of God again at the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. When they finally recognize that Jesus Christ is God. And that's important because that means that when we see that phrase, the Lord, throughout the scriptures, there has to be a Trinitarian understanding of it. The Lord is Jehovah of the Old Testament. The Lord is Jesus, of course, and the Lord is the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see going forward in verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit. Well, that's the deity of the Holy Spirit. Man, we don't have time to just camp here. We've got discipleship lessons about this stuff. Please sign up for discipleship if you haven't. We can help you with that. But the deity of the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit of God is fully God. He is God the Spirit. He is the third person of the Godhead. You can, might remember back in Acts chapter 5, in verses 3 and 4, Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart, notice, to lie to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price of the land, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Equating the Holy Ghost with God. The Lord is that spirit. The Lord is the one that they will turn to in salvation at his physical coming. And he is also that spirit 
that is referred to throughout the Old Testament as well. And so the verse goes on and says, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And liberty simply means freedom. You all know that. It means there's a clearing. There's a freedom from bondage, from the law, and all legal requirements. There's liberty. So we study that word in the Bible, and we come across the very first time that it's ever mentioned in the Scriptures. A lot of you know that rule of Bible study, the law of first mention. And it happens to be in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse number 10. Leviticus 25 and verse 10 is actually part of which is printed and inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, if you were to go and visit and check it out. It says, And you shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. That's what's on the Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land. Unto all the inhabitants thereof, it shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. So the 50th year, as the Jews were to count out their years, then every 50th year would be a year of jubilee, and all the slaves would be set free, and the bondage would be taken away, and there was complete and total liberty. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land. You can't keep a slave more than that amount of time. The slaves are set free for you and for me. Now the spiritual understanding or application in our lives is, is that Jesus Christ is our jubilee. He is the one that has set us free. We are no longer under any kind of a bondage to any kind of a legal requirement anymore. Jesus came and proclaimed liberty to Israel. He proclaimed it to everybody. So we see, for example, during his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, Starting in verse 17. And there was delivered unto him, unto Jesus Christ, the book of the prophet Esaias, or Isaiah, where he's going to be reading from Isaiah 61. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Here's where he's reading from Isaiah 61. And now Jesus is in the synagogue. He's sitting down as a rabbi. He's teaching the word of God. He pulls out the prophet Isaiah. Everybody is glued, listening, can't wait to hear what he's going to say. And he begins to quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. Just stop there for a second, by the way. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. Okay, and he, the same Spirit of the Lord, hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And at this point, he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now what's really interesting about all that is Jesus Christ sits in the temple. They're not, they're not understanding who he is. They're not ready to receive who he is. They ultimately officially reject who he is. But this is early in his earthly ministry. I mean, this is only chapter 4 of Luke. This is at the beginning. And he's beginning to reveal who he is. And so he goes into the synagogue. He takes the Old Testament. He goes to the very place that's prophesied about him. And he reads through it and he stops and he says, right here. This is your fulfillment. Now, it's interesting because if you were to get Isaiah 61 in your other hand and compare Luke chapter 4 with Isaiah 61, what you're going to find is that in the middle of verse number 2, Jesus stopped reading. He didn't fully finish that verse. 
when he said that he was going to preach the acceptable year of the Lord and then close the book, there's a reason. And the reason is because verse 2 in Isaiah 61 goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. And the day of vengeance of our God, well, that's reserved for the second coming. And Jesus was still here the first time. And Israel still had a chance to repent. They still had a chance to receive him. So he said, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's enough for today. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight. The other one, not yet. We'll get to that. Depending upon your response, whether it comes quickly or we postpone it a couple thousand years. See? Liberty. Well, this veil covering pictures something for us, and we referred to it briefly earlier. It, it kind of pictures a wedding, doesn't it? We often think of the veil when we think of the bride in a wedding. Like I said, she comes down the aisle. She's a mystery. The groom waits for her, right, the whole deal. Well, that's a picture, and that's an important picture because concerning the nation of Israel in the context of the things in which we read, Israel is referred to as the wife of God the Father. And because of her spiritual adulteries, God put her away and wrote a bill of divorcement, but he's going to reunite with his wife again at the second coming. That's when the veil will be removed at her salvation nationally at the second coming. She'll be reinstated as God's wife. But for the church, we are the bride of God the Son, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are, the bride of Jesus Christ. And, and our veil will be fully removed at the rapture of the church, right? When we go up to meet our bridegroom in the clouds, Romans 8.21 says it this way, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, which refers to physical death, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that liberty is available to you as the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And salvation brings to you liberty from the bondage of the Old Testament, from the law, from any kind of a legal requirement that might be in your life. It actually is referred to the end of that which is abolished in verse 13. So Paul refers to it this way in Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh, Christ's flesh, the enmity. What's that? Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. So, okay, that's a long illustration to describe what we're not supposed to do in veiling the message. Don't lose track of what Paul is really saying to you, church, seeing then that we have such great hope, right? We use great plainness of speech. And we are to speak in such a way that it, we don't veil God's message in word, but it's not quite done yet because we still have verse 18 because we shouldn't be veiling God's message indeed either. And so that's our second point. Unveil your communication, but now unveil your character. Unveil your character. In other words, live openly, 
Quit hiding behind some facade. Quit living a lie. The only people that do that are pretenders. They're fakes. And a good minister of Jesus Christ is open and transparent with his life. Look, if you haven't figured it out, listen, having this position is not something to be coveted after. Everybody loves to stare at me or anybody who's in charge, and they love to just judge. You preach the truth to them, and they'll find fault in you. And let me just tell you, you can find fault in me, but you can't find it all because I know way more about me than you know about me. I'm a mess, y'all. But here's the deal. I kind of don't care. I mean, I care. I want to be like the Lord, but I don't care if you happen to notice that I'm a mess. Because you know what? I'm no different than the rest of you. I'm just a work in progress. That's all. I'm just a work in progress. And by the way, if God is in the process of changing me, well, to God be the glory. I mean, that's all that really matters, right? So, I mean, let's just get in there and let's just do it and let's be honest about it. If you know that your life has been changed, you know the old saying, right? I'm, I'm not who you know, I need to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be. If your life is in the process of being changed, man, you, you don't mind being unveiled in front of people. Let God have the glory. It's not about you. So here in verse 18, the text returns again to address us. It addresses us in verse 12, seeing that we have such great hope, we use great plainness of speech. The next five verses, Israel's illustration. Verse 18 comes back to us. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so, when we are being addressed as to what needs to happen. We need to unveil our speech in verse 12. We need to unveil our character because we are changed. We are changed. And we're changed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's like the Apostle John said in his gospel, chapter 3 and verse number 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Listen, y'all. There's no room for you to hide behind some spiritual mask, pretending to be someone you're not. Why don't you just get honest with God and see for yourself who you really are, who he sees you to be, and let him change you. And let him change you. Just see what happens. I mean, what are you afraid of? Changing into the image of Jesus Christ? Is that what you're afraid of? He says, from glory to glory. Well, we've talked about this a lot already, so we'll go very quickly. But from glory to glory, well, that's that, that's that thing I talked about, the ministration of the Spirit. That's the glory of Jesus Christ shining through you. So unveiling your character is, well, it's revealing another one of the New Testament ministries, the new mysteries, excuse me, the New Testament mystery of the indwelling Christ. This is Colossians chapter 1. And verse 27, where it talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. This was a mystery in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit did not 
seal a believer and live inside of them permanently, never to leave them, to give them eternal security. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. This is something that's revealed in the New. And so the idea of the indwelling Christ, Christ is now in you and changing you into the same image that he has from glory, his glory, through your spirit to manifest his glory. So that's why Paul would say, for example, in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Oh, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So yeah, I'm alive and moving around, but if I'm walking with the Lord, well, it's really the Lord living through me. It's not me. And while I'm flawed and doing the best I can, hopefully it's not me controlling the scenario. It's the Lord controlling the scenario, right? So this is the mystery. But that mystery is only going to take effect. That's only going to become real in your life when you do what it says in verse 18, right? When we with open face, no mask, no veil before the Lord, beholding as in a glass, as we'll see in a second, the Word of God, the glory of the Lord. Remember what glory means, right? It's just to manifest His presence. So this glass is what we used to say a long time ago, a looking glass. It's a mirror. The idea of the looking in a glass means a looking glass, a mirror, right? And it, it actually refers to the Word of God. We see that in James chapter 1. So in James chapter 1, 23, it says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, the mirror, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, the context, unveiling your character, you're an actual doer of the work, well, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So similar to Moses, who had to put the veil over his face in front of the children of Israel because of their fear and their inability to stand before the reflected glory, when, God, when Moses went back to meet with God, masks off. Not before God. He didn't wear the veil when he spent time before the glory of God, which, by the way, was associated with God giving Moses his word engraved in tables of stone, right? Hearing directly from God about his will. Well, that's what you're to do. Just get real before God. Become transparent before the word of God. And let him change you. That's what he wants us to do. I mean, seriously, y'all, think about it. Each of you just think of yourself for a second. Seriously, how long has it been since you legitimately and seriously have spent serious time alone before the Lord, before his word, as transparent as you know how to be, asking him to change you? How long has it been? Everybody answers for their own selves differently, however it hits you. How do you like that for plain talking? This is how we need to understand what God is trying to say to us. 
we have one more mystery to unveil, and that, again, ties into our context. It's the New Testament mystery of the bride of Christ. You know this, Ephesians 5, that great passage on weddings and marriage and all this stuff, Ephesians 5, 31, this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is great, right? So verse 32, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the idea that the bride of Christ will be fully unveiled at the rapture, okay, we get that. That's physically when we get a glorified body and the veil of our physical body will be stripped away. But now, even now, we can spend time directly in God's presence spiritually, right? With no veil, with an open face, whenever we spend time alone with Him in His Word, right? Because the Word of God is the manifestation of the glory of God. Hey, church, listen, bride of Christ, why don't you take off your pretension and go before your bridegroom with an open face, honestly look into his word and see what he shows you. It's like a mirror. Now, you know, as best as I can see, this is a fairly large room. My guess is that probably every one of you, well, most every one of you, probably spent a little time before a mirror before you came here today. And allow me to say thank you. It's our routine, isn't it? At some point before we leave the house to go out in public, we spend some time before a mirror to make sure that, well, at least we're satisfied with what we're going to look like before we go out there right? Well, that's the picture. The Word of God is our mirror. Let me, let me just give you a word about mirrors, okay? You know that if by chance, I'm just going to say this real quick, all right? If your mirror is broken, it gives a false image. Make sure you've got the right mirror. You know what else? You should start the day looking in the mirror. You don't want to spend the whole day and then come home at night and be like, oh, that's how I looked. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know what else it is about a mirror? This is, this is the one, of, one of the more depressing things about mirrors. Mirrors don't lie. We're the ones that lie when we look into them. And you know what? Unlike a photograph, a mirror is alive. A mirror shows you what you look like this very instant, not what you looked like when you took your passport photo or whatever, right? It always gives you a constant update of what you're looking like. And can I just tell you, no matter how many mirrors you have in your house, none of them do you any good if you don't look into them. I mean, does it get any plainer? This is the idea the Lord wants to get through to us. This is the idea of how we can pull back that facade, to pull back that, that veil that seems to make mystery a mystery of ministry. There's no need. Just speak openly. Just live openly. Because when you spend time with God and His Word, man, you're set free. That's John 8, 32, right? You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free, right? 
You're set at liberty from any legal requirement. Any legalism. That's Galatians 5. Stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't go back to some legalistic standard of having to view outward standards and, and, and things imposed upon you from somebody else when the Spirit of God has made you free. It should be liberating to know that there's no set external standards. It should be liberating to know that you can just be yourself before God. It should be liberating to know that you can be honest about your struggles. And just go to Him and let Him change you so the truth will make you free. And the truth is available. Why somebody wouldn't take advantage of that? I don't know that I'll ever understand. But you know what we need to do? Spiritually speaking, right? Get rid of the masks, y'all. Get rid of them. And be honest before the Lord. And then communicate honestly what you know. Love people enough to do that. And be honest with yourself about who you are. Stop communicating in some veiled way just so that you can maybe preserve the feelings of somebody else if that's what you think. But what you're doing is you're hindering their opportunity to get the truth. I mean, how selfish is that really? Stop hiding behind your mask of pretense, hoping that nobody's going to figure out that you're a fake when you could just get honest before your bridegroom and ask him to change you. That's how we unveil the mystery of ministry. That's the need of the hour. Y'all, this clock is ticking. You don't know how much time we have left. You want to get it right now before it's too late, right? I've talked enough. Let's talk to the Lord.